my pleasure to welcome you this morning as we come together to worship, and we'll begin with a with a uh, pastoral prayer, prayer request. Uh, Ms. Fikes, hand me a prayer request. There's a family, I guess, up in... Up. All right, I'm going to invite you to take your Bible this morning, and uh, our call to worship will, will come from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, we're focusing today on uh, Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross as we uh, build toward the... Uh, the climax, the culmination of our of our service with the observance of the Lord's Supper, the ordinance that Jesus has given us to proclaim His death and to remember His death until He comes again. And so uh, our focus is going to be on uh, the glory of Jesus Christ that is manifested to us in His cross and His death in our place. And so Psalm 22, Psalm 22, To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy. Enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I'm a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and they shake the head saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones." They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him, He heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly I will pay my vows before those who fear Him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. 
All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Those who go down to the dust shall bow before Him, even He who cannot keep Himself alive. A posterity shall serve Him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born. That He has done this. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we look at this psalm, and Lord, we see the reality of what Jesus experienced in our place on our behalf. Lord, we give You praise because it pleased You to crush Him. And that He was forsaken so that we can be forgiven. And so Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would enable us this day to grasp the, the, the sacrifice that was made for our salvation. The work that was accomplished by Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would be convicted by the, the depth and uh, the, the, the expanse of our sinfulness, Lord, that we were so utterly and completely and totally sinful and helpless and hopeless that only the death of the Son of God, God the Son, could make us right, could save us. And Lord, we're thankful for Your grace and Your kindness toward us in Christ and sending Him to turn away your wrath so that we might be saved. And Lord, we're thankful for His glorious resurrection and for His present ministry of intercession right now, even now, interceding for us at your right hand. And Lord, we're thankful for His presence with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that your Spirit this morning would enable and empower us to behold your glory and to be drawn by your glory to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would be pleased in our worship and that Christ would be exalted and that we would be conformed to his image. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Right, I'm going to invite you to take your hymnals and turn with me to hymn 200 and worship and turn with me to Acts. Acts chapter 2. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 3. I'm so used to saying Acts chapter 2. I forget. We're in chapter 3 now. Acts chapter 3. Looking at the second Christian sermon, the second sermon preached by Peter after the day of Pentecost, after the birth of the church, or the second one recorded for us uh, in the book of Acts. We know that they were, uh, the church was committed, devoted to the apostles' teaching, and they were meeting from house to house daily, and so I'm sure there was very much preaching going on, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke has directed that this second sermon be recorded for us and uh, preserved for us and translated into our language so that we can read and understand and study it. And we look at this uh, uh, again. We began looking at this sermon last week, and we continue our look at it today. And today we're going to focus on verse 13 as we prepare ourselves for uh, coming to the Lord's table and, uh, and participating in this ordinance that Jesus gave for us to, uh, to remember and to proclaim His death until He comes, and to anticipate the day when He comes and we have this feast again with Him in the kingdom of God. And so uh, Acts, chapter, Acts chapter 3, verse 13, Peter says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, 
glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised up from the dead, which we are witnesses. We're going to really focus on that phrase in verse 13, uh, that God has glorified His servant Jesus as we prepare ourselves for coming to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for Your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we're thankful that You're a God who speaks and that You have spoken to us. And You've spoken to us through Your Spirit as You carried holy men to uh, uh, write and record Your very words for us. And Lord, we're thankful that Your your Word is, is here with us and it is without error and it is sufficient that we might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would would do His work in leading us to your, to your truth. Lord, helping us to understand and walk in truth and to be conformed by Your truth into the image of Your Son, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. And so Peter has taken advantage of the opportunity. We saw uh, in, the last, in the previous weeks that God has drawn a crowd. God has drawn a crowd by the, the healing of a man who was over 40 years old a man who was uh, over 40 and had been born lame. He had been born paralyzed and had never, ever walked. He was over 40 and uh, uh, there had never been a day in those 40 years that he had not been a burden to someone because he could not walk. And his friends carried him and set him at the, the gate called Beautiful outside of the temple where he would be able to beg. And, 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 and there, day after day, he would sit as people came to the temple and he would beg for a few coins so that he might be able to, to meet his needs. Since he was unable to walk and unable to work, he'd get a few coins from those who were going up to the temple to worship uh, to provide for his sustenance, to provide the things that he needed in order to survive. And so he was well known to the worshipers because he'd been sitting outside of the gate begging for a few coins. And uh, God, by his grace, enabled Peter and John in the name of Jesus to, to uh, Jesus healed this man and enabled him to arise to walk. And as he was so excited because of what had happened to him, he went into the temple walking and leaping and praising God and was holding on to Peter and John. And so this great crowd gathered. They knew this man, and they knew that a miracle had occurred. There, there was no doubt what had happened because they knew this lame man and knew that he'd been sitting there outside the gate every day, and, uh, and now he was walking and leaping and praising God. And a great crowd had gathered, and Peter took advantage of that, took advantage of that opportunity, that crowd that gathered, and he preached proclaimed he spoke the gospel and last week we talked about the fact that the the gospel begins with with God God creating us in his own image so that we can know him and then the gospel also uh, the good news of Jesus contains the bad news of the sinfulness of humanity and and Peter very quickly confronted them with their sinfulness with their depravity and he he confronted them with their sin and so the bad news of the gospel, or the, yeah, the bad news of the gospel, the gospel begins with the bad news of human sin, that we are all sinners, 
And we cannot even imagine the depth of our depravity, that we are more evil, more wicked than we can even imagine. And because of our sinfulness, our rebellion against the Creator, we deserve nothing from God except His wrath. We deserve nothing from God except anger. We deserve nothing from God except punishment. We deserve nothing except an eternity in hell satisfying God's wrath. And Peter is faithful to proclaim the, the sinfulness of man and the helplessness and the hopelessness that we all deserve death. But we saw, we talked about last week, and we'll talk about next week, the gospel also contains good news. The good news that we can be forgiven, that our sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and Jesus is going to come, and, 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 and there's going to be a time of restoration. There's good news of the gospel. Forgiveness of sins, refreshing from the Lord, and everything being made right. And so from that bad news to the good news, there is a turn, the pivot. And the pivot is the death of Jesus Christ. And so Peter begins talking about the sinfulness of humans and he ends talking about the, the good that can come when we repent and put our trust in Jesus Christ. And that goodness, the forgiveness of sins, the refreshing from God, the restoration of all things was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we see that in verse 13. Peter confronts them with their sinfulness, attributing to man what God had done. And he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. And then we talked about the sinfulness of them delivering up, denying him in the presence of Pilate, uh, demanding that he be, be, be killed. And so, so Peter speaks here of the death of Jesus as God glorifying his servant, Jesus. That's where I want us to focus as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant, Jesus. Now it's interesting, he uses that term servant, Jesus, and, that, and that's, it's kind of unusual in the New Testament. It's very few times that Jesus is referred to as God's servant, as the servant of God. And we looked a little bit at that last week as we looked at Isaiah chapter 53, uh, 52 and 53, the the suffering servant. Uh, but this is an unusual designation in the New Testament, Jesus being the servant of God. Normally, we see Jesus referred to as the Son of God, God the Son, the Word that became flesh. And so it's, it's kind of unusual to see this, this designation, Jesus as the servant of God. And I believe Peter used this term under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show the lowliness of Jesus and the contrast God glorified His servant. And this word servant is a lowly word. It, it can also be translated child, but it is, it is uh, uh, inferior in rank to the word that is usually translated son. And it, and, it, and it denotes a very small child, a very insignificant child. A child uh, in that culture that had no value, no worth. A, a tiny, itty-bitty child. But it was also used to denote the slave of lowest rank. A tiny, insignificant child or a slave, the slave of, of lowest rank, the youngest, most insignificant slave in the household that would perform the most menial of tasks, like perhaps washing the feet of guests who had come there. And so this word is used to describe the lowest possible rank in the household, even lower than the deacon 
who would be the one who waited on tables. And so Peter uses this word to show the lowliness of Jesus, the humility, the humiliation of Jesus. And Paul writes about that in, in Philippians chapter 2. He says, even though Jesus was equal with God and, and, uh, and one with God in essence and being, and he was with God in the beginning, he was God in the beginning, but he did not consider that equality with God something to be grasped, something to cling to. But instead, he emptied himself and became nothing and, and, and took the form of a servant and actually became a servant. There was nothing about him that would be attractive to a person. He took the lowest place. And yes, he even stood down and washed the feet of his disciples, taking the lowest place, the place of lowest rank. He humbled himself and he became a servant. And he humbled himself even further, even unto death, even the death on the cross. The death of a felon. The death of a traitor. Jesus humbled himself. And Peter says that God has glorified his servant. God has given him a name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here, here Peter speaks of the glorification of of Jesus. And I believe that here he is speaking about the glorification uh, on the cross. God glorified his servant Jesus that was delivered up and denied in the presence of, of Pilate, that was killed. And in chapter 2, he said he was killed by being fastened to a cross, nailed to a cross. And so, what I want us to focus on today is how God glorified Jesus in the cross. You know, a lot of times, me, I, I when I think of I think of the cross as necessary suffering on the road to glory. That the cross was humiliation and shame and agony and suffering on the road to glory. But, you know, that's not how Jesus viewed his death. And uh, this, this week I was reading a sermon by the, the uh, uh, 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon. It kind of helped me see the, the glory of even in the cross, the cross was not just suffering on the road to glory, but the cross itself was glorifying to Jesus. Now, the word glorified means to display honor, dignity, splendor, and majesty. To glorify, to show glory. Honor, dignity, splendor, and majesty. And it's important for us to know that Jesus saw the cross as glorifying. We read about it in John chapter 2, just the, the previous book, the book right before, I mean John chapter 12, right before uh, the book of Acts is the gospel of John. And in John chapter 12, Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem on what we uh, have traditionally come to call Palm Sunday. His triumphant entry into Jerusalem, he has just raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, and the word has gone out that Jesus has raised this man from the dead, and huge crowds of people are coming out of Jerusalem. They had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and now they're coming out uh, toward the road to Bethany, uh, where Lazarus lives as Jesus is coming, riding on a donkey in fulfillment of a prophecy made by Zechariah, the, uh, the Old Testament prophet that we're studying on Wednesday night. Talked to the king, coming, riding on a colt. 
And Jesus is coming in fulfillment of that prophecy and the people are flooding out of Jerusalem, welcoming him. They're grabbing palm branches and they're waving them and putting them before them and, and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now. Blessed is the son of David. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's welcomed by the crowds and, and we would think that this would be a very encouraging moment and that, that this was really the high point. But Jesus sees it different. Because as He's coming into Jerusalem, we're told in John chapter 12, verse 20, there were certain Greeks that had come to worship at the feast. And those Greeks go to one of the disciples named Philip, who happened to have a Greek name, which means lover of horses. They went to Philip. They were Greek. They went to one of the disciples that had a Greek name and, and said, We want to see Jesus. And what did Philip do? Well, Philip took the Greeks to Andrew because Andrew was the one that was always bringing people to Jesus. It was Andrew who brought Peter. It was Andrew who brought the little boy who had five loaves and two fishes when they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with 5,000 men. Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus, so these people wanted to see Jesus. So Philip went and asked Andrew, and Philip and Andrew went and asked Jesus and told Jesus, there are some Greeks who want to see you. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say anything about these people. But what does he say? In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hours come that the Son of Man be glorified. That the Son of Man be honored. That His dignity, that His majesty and His splendor be displayed. Jesus evidently saw that as a sign, the coming of the Greeks to show that the Rejection of Israel was complete. Even though they were waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. Jesus knew that he was not going to meet their expectations of a military hero or a, or a political authority. He was not going to meet their expectations and their rejection of him was really complete. And this would be the time of his glorification, of his lifting up, of the final rejection of the Christ, of the Messiah by his people who had come to his own, but his own did not receive him. And Jesus saw the coming of these Greeks as the symbol, the sign that his rejection of Israel was complete, and that after his resurrection, the gospel would be preached to the, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, every ethnicity. And so Jesus says, this, the hour has come that the Son of Man be glorified. In the very next statement, he makes it clear that he is speaking, not of his resurrection, not of his exaltation, not of his ascension, but of his death. The hour has come that the Son of Man be glorified. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus saw the hour of the cross as the hour of his glory. Where his honor, his dignity, his splendor, his majesty would be put on display. We look at the cross and we see shame, we see agony, we see suffering, we see pain. Jesus looked at the cross and he saw glory, dignity, honor, majesty, and splendor. And so when we look at the cross, we should see His glory. God has glorified His servant, Jesus. And I think there's 
There's several ways that the glory of Jesus is displayed in the cross. Number one, the glory of Jesus is displayed in what he accomplished there. The honor, the dignity, the splendor and majesty of Jesus is displayed by what he accomplished at the cross. Because on the cross, he bore the weight of human sin. He bore the full weight of every single sin ever committed or ever to be committed by every single one of his people. He bore the weight of their sin. And he satisfied the wrath of God against that sin, turning God's wrath away by enduring it, by absorbing it. The chastisement that was for our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The honor, the dignity, the splendor, the majesty of Jesus is displayed as he bears the awesome, indescribable, inconceivable weight of the guilt and the shame of every single sin ever committed by every single one of his people. Past, present, and future. Samson in all his strength could not bear that weight. David, the warrior and shepherd king, could not carry that load. Solomon, in all of his glory and splendor, could not pay the debt that was owed. Only Jesus God the Son, the Son of God, could carry that weight, could bear that burden and pay the debt that was owed, turning away by satisfying God's wrath. The glory of Jesus, the splendor, the dignity, the honor, and the majesty is displayed in what he accomplished. And Jesus did not just accomplish the possibility of salvation for his people. In the death of Jesus, he accomplished the salvation of every single one that the Father had given to him. The actual salvation of all, every one of his people, of which he will not lose one. And so Jesus is glorified in the cross because of what he accomplished there. And I think Jesus is also glorified in the cross because of the way he accomplished his work. The way that he accomplished his work. He's bearing the weight of sin, or the weight of human sin, the guilt, the shame, the wrath of God for human sin. And as he is on the cross, bearing that weight, we see glory. Honor, dignity, majesty, and splendor in the way that he bore that weight. In the way that he accomplished his work. When he was spat upon and mocked and insulted, he did not insult in return. We see his gentleness. 
great strength, the strength to bear that load, to carry that weight, the strength of God, the author and origin and sustainer of life, the master of the universe. We see incredible strength. And yet that strength is under control. And we see His gentleness and His humility, His kindness and His grace. When He was insulted, He did not return insults. When He was reviled, He did not revile and return. Instead, He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as he was bearing that incredible, awesome weight of sin, with care and compassion, he made sure that his mother was taken care of and trusting her to the care of the disciple that he loved. And we see great grace and gentleness. We see honor and dignity and majesty and splendor in the way that Jesus endured the shame and the agony, the humiliation of the cross and the way that He endured the wrath of God for the sins of His people. Jesus is glorified in the way that He accomplished His work. He's glorified in what He accomplished there and He's also glorified in the way that He accomplished it. And third, Jesus is glorified in the cross. We see His glory, His dignity, His honor, His splendor, and His majesty on the cross because it was on the cross that He crushed the head of Satan. It's on the cross that He defeated His enemy. The writer of Hebrews says, Writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 14, Inasmuch as the children have partaken flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. The foot that was nailed to the cross crushed the head of Satan. In his death, he accomplished the defeat of the enemy. He crushed the head of that serpent. Yes, the serpent took his best shot. Satan took his best shot and, and uh, worked in the hearts of sinful men to deny him, to deliver him up, to deny the Holy One and the just and demand that a murder be given to him and they killed the Prince of Life. Satan was able to bruise his heel. But on the cross, Jesus crushed Satan's head he defeated the enemy he defeated the one who has held the power of death and he sets his people free who all their life had lived in slavery bondage to their fear of death jesus is glorified in the cross because on the cross he defeated the enemy the enemy was placed under his foot and he crushed his head So we see dignity and honor, glory and splendor in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. We see glory and honor, dignity and, and, and splendor in the way that He accomplished it with His gentleness and His grace and His kindness and His compassion. And we see it in the way that He won the victory over the enemy. And fourth, we see the glory of Jesus on the cross and the events that accompanied 
his death. We read about it in Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Matthew tells us that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. John tells us what he said. John tells us that Jesus cries out, It is finished. Tetelestai, meaning it has been paid. It has been fulfilled. It has been accomplished. It was a shout of victory. All that the Father had called Him to do, He had finished. All that the Father had given to Him to fulfill had been fulfilled. All of the ceremonies of the law, all of the sacrifices had been fulfilled and accomplished. Everything that's required for the salvation of every single one of His people, everyone that the Father had given to Him, their salvation debt had been paid in full. It has been accomplished. It has been fulfilled. It is finished. It is complete. Everything that is required for their salvation is done. Jesus gives this shout of victory. Tetelestai. It is finished. And when he makes that shout, Matthew tells us, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earthquake, the rocks were split, the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. Such was the dignity and honor and glory and splendor of his death. We read that even the centurion, verse 54, and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened. They feared greatly and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus was lifted up on the cross. In the cross, He was glorified. His dignity, His honor, His majesty and His splendor was put on display because of what He accomplished. Because how He accomplished it. And He defeated the enemy. And he was glorified in the events that surrounded his death. Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And if a grain of wheat remain alive, it remains alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies... It produces much grain. Jesus was glorified in his death. He was glorified on the cross. And Peter preaches the bad news of the sinfulness of humans. But he preaches the good news of Jesus. That God has glorified his servant. The one you delivered up. The one you denied in the presence of, of Pilate the Holy One and the just, the one that you killed. God has raised Him from the dead. 
And so, yes, Jesus is glorified in his death. He's also glorified in his resurrection. The resurrection shows that that sacrifice was accepted, that the enemy has been destroyed, and that God's wrath has been turned away, and everything that's required for the salvation of every one of his people has been accomplished. And he was glorified in his resurrection and glorified in his exaltation and glorified in the sending of the Holy Spirit, showing that Jesus is still at work in the world through his church. Jesus was glorified in the cross. His glory, his honor, his dignity, his splendor, his majesty was on full display. And Jesus has given us a way to remember. To remember. First, the depth of our sinfulness, the extent of our helplessness and our hopelessness. We are more wicked than we've ever imagined. We are so evil that only the death of God's Son, the death of the Son of God, God the Son, could save us from our sins. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we're admitting our, our need our need for a Savior. And He's given us a way to remember the sacrifice that was paid for our sin and the beauty, the glory, the splendor, the majesty of the Son of God, God the Son, who left the glory of heaven, became fully human, tempted in every way that we are sharing in our weakness and becoming our servant, obedient even unto death, even death on a cross, and even in that death, displaying His splendor and His glory and His majesty. He gave us a way to remember and to proclaim His death as the source, the only source of our hope. And he gave us this ordinance to proclaim his death and also proclaim our unity. Our union with him by God's grace through faith and our union with one another as we come together with one loaf, one cup, one Savior, one Lord, one church, one body under the head who is Christ. And so in obedience to the Lord's command, we will come to his table. And Paul tells us a man ought to examine himself before he comes to the table, recognizing the depth of our sinfulness and the only help and hope for us is Christ Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. And it's by God's grace through faith that we're invited. That we're invited to have communion and union with Christ in new life. And so as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we're going to sing another hymn. And uh, it's actually, it's hymn 409. It's to the same tune of the song we just